want you to find Ephesians chapter 6 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app. We begin today the final section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Yes, we are in the home stretch, four weeks left in this book after our 45, 46 week journey so far in this. We come to Paul's very final instructions, his final commands, apart from his final greeting. We are in the last section of this book. What more can Paul say to us? What is he going to end this book on? What note is he going to sound as he wraps up everything he's been saying? Well, think about the book so far. He's told us what God has done for us. He's reminded us that we are chosen by God. We are adopted, that we are saved, that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's reminded us it's not just about us, that God has saved us and made us part of a community of faith, that our lives are not just about us, but they're part of a bigger story of God's glory on display in the church, how he, God brings people from different backgrounds together to be the church, and how he gives us in his sovereign plans differing spiritual gifts so that we could serve one another. And he himself works to create the unity of believers in the church. Out of that, then Paul has told us how we're to live in light of our identity in Christ, in light of the church and our, and our community life together. He showed us how we're to live, that we're to put off Anything that is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. We're to rid from our lives everything from anger to sexual immorality to yelling. And we go through the whole list of stuff we've seen. But he hasn't stopped there. He's told us to put on, to add to our lives by God's grace, Christ's likeness. To put on things like humility, forgiveness, patience, serving others, and so much more. And then Paul has taken all that incredible truth and applied it to the closest of human relationships the home life. And he showed us how husbands are to love their wives with a Christ-like, humble leadership. We're to see how wives respect their husbands and encourage their husbands that role. We've seen how children are to obey their parents and how all of us are to submit to the authorities over us. Paul has given us a lot to chew on in these five and a half chapters so far. What more can he say? When these last ten verses before he closes the book, he will say a good bit. And what he's going to wrap up with in this book is why it is so hard for us to live this way. Why we struggle so much to live out this identity in Christ. Why we so quickly forget who we are in Christ. Why temptations constantly bombard us. Why we so often fall short of God's standard. Why division in the church so quickly arises. Why our homes are so frequently broken. He's going to expose to us why everything he's just said has been so hard for us to do. But he's not going to leave us hopeless because he's going to show us how there really is hope to see everything he's written to us in Ephesians actually lived out in our lives. He's going to show us how we can overcome the struggles. So this morning we come to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look this morning at verses 10 through 13. And as we read the text, I want you to look for two things. First of all, why do we fall so short? What is it that makes it so challenging for us? Why we struggle so much to live out our identity in Christ? Then number two, what is the hope? So why do we struggle and what is the hope? We come to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that your word would come alive. Lord, I pray this morning you would help us understand why we struggle like we do. 
But God, I pray that none of us will walk away hopeless this morning. God, that your word would fill our hearts afresh with the hope we have to walk victoriously, not because of anything in us, but because of what you have done and are continuing to do in our lives. So we ask for much grace this morning to understand this text clearly, much grace this morning to apply it to our lives, and much grace this morning, Father, to live out what you lay before us. So Holy Spirit, come, fill each of the hearts of your children, that your word might come alive, that you might illumine for us the truth of your word and show us how it transforms us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So there's one thing I want you to see this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, and it's simply this. To walk worthy of our calling, we must have God's strength. Because a very real enemy opposes us. To walk worthy of our calling, we must have God's strength because a very real enemy opposes us. Lisa alluded to this when she was talking about the mission trip she's about to go on. She's going to a place of much spiritual darkness. And why does she and all the others need our prayers? Why do we all need prayers? Because to do what God has called all of us to do, we have to have his strength. We can't do this on our own. I just want to caution us out at the outset, friends. You hear me use the phrase white-knuckle determination. This is not a message, try harder. This is not a call to white-knuckle determination to just hang on there and try better. This is something that's going to cause us to come to a place of utter dependence upon the Lord and to rely on His strength. And we'll see the reality of why we need His strength so desperately because of the enemy that opposes us. So let's start with the idea of this is about walking worthy of our calling. If you look at the text we've been looking at, maybe thinking, Grady, I don't see that in there anywhere. Well, it's there, I promise you. So go back to verse 10. I'll show you where walking worthy is. Look at the first word, finally. There it is. That's where we get the idea of walking worthy from in this particular text. What is Paul saying when he says finally? He is wrapping up this idea that he's been building. And what ideas he's been building is the whole second half of the book. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is what finally is all about. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, he introduces the idea. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. So finally, as he's saying now, I've been telling you what this looks like, so now I've got one more thing to tell you about walking worthy. But let me remind you of what we've seen here in chapters 4, 5, and 6 about walking worthy. I'll remind us here, it's so important, we do not walk worthy to gain God's favor. Rather, because we have God's favor, we seek now to walk worthy. If you think way back to when we started chapter 4, The word for walk worthy is the word axios. It means axiom, to to keep in balance. It's a call to say, recognize who God sees you as, and now by His grace, strive to be how He already sees you. We're not doing these things to gain His favor. We do these things because we already have it. But as we strive to do these things because we already have God's favor, we realize how far we all fall short in these things. And when we realize we've fallen short of God's standard, we've fallen short of how God already sees us, we have two dangers. Either we despair and throw up our hands and just say, I can't do it, and that doesn't help anything. Or again, we, we hang on and try harder, and we all know that doesn't help either. So what is the hope to walk worthy of our calling? So we now go back to chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, finally because you're called to walk worthy. Finally because you need help to walk worthy. What does Paul call us to do? Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He commands us to be strong. The word be strong is an imperative. That means it's a command. This is not a suggestion for a better way to live. This is a command that God requires obedience in, that he requires us to live a certain way. God is requiring us to seek to be strong. Now, lest we misunderstand this in our culture, when we hear be strong, we think self-help, try harder. This is not just an imperative in the Greek. This is also a passive command in the Greek, which means it's a command that you cannot do. It's a command that has to be done to you. 
So again, realize what Paul's saying. He's saying, you be strong, but guess what? Someone else has to make you strong. This is a passive command. You're going, wait, wait, I'm being commanded to do something I can't do? And that's exactly the point here. We've seen this once before in Ephesians. Look back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It's the other place in the book where we have an, a command, an imperative that's in the passive tense here. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So think back a few months ago when we looked at Ephesians 5.18. This is an imperative. We are commanded as God's children to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's passive. We cannot fill ourselves. God has to do it for us. So how do we obey the command to be filled since we can't do it ourselves? We obey Ephesians 5.18 when we long to be filled and we ask God to fill us. Now that's the pattern for us here as we go back to verse 10. It's the exact same thing. How do we obey a passive command We desire for God to do it, and we ask Him to do it. This is not try harder. This is to us to recognize our weakness and ask God to do what only God can do. God, give me strength here. We obey the command when we long for it and ask Him to do it. And we're not asking to do it so we can win the next football game. We're not asking Him to do it so we can accomplish the next goal. We're asking Him for strength to live out our calling, to walk worthy in all this. And how does God answer? When we say, God, I need you to give me strength, how does God answer well, I think too often in our culture, we kind of expect God to be like the football coach who gives us a pep talk. God, I need strength. And we kind of wait for God to come to us and be like, you got this. Give it all your God. I'm watching. Come on. I believe in you. But that's not what God does here. Sometimes I think we approach this, be strong in the Lord, expecting God to give us some type of supernatural energy pill or some energy drink. If we just ask God for help, he's going to somehow boost us and give us some stamina that we didn't have. But that's not what this is saying here. This is also not some specially revealed strategy where God says, if you pray this, do this, do this, then you're going to win. That's not what this is about. When we ask God for strength to walk worthy, how does God answer? God gives us himself. God gives us his very presence. This is what we saw in Ephesians 5.18. It's so interesting that the two commands that Paul gives that are imperatives but are passive, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be strong in the Lord. They're really one and the same. When we ask God to fill us with his strength, we're really asking him to give us of himself. Notice the phrase here in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. This is relational language. It's speaking of our relationship with God. We're asking God to give us himself, and in that we find strength when he abides with us. So when we call out to God and say, God, I keep falling. I keep in, keep in you name whatever sin we're struggling with. I keep struggling to put on whatever virtue here that he's laid out. And we call and say, God, I can't keep doing this. I'm struggling. Help. Give me your strength. God answers by giving us his very presence. I mean, think about it when you were a child. Think back to a time when you were a child and you were afraid or you were struggling with something. And you cried out to your mom and dad, help. And they came running to you. The comfort wasn't that they stood in the corner and said, you got this. The comfort came from their presence. How much more so when you're struggling and I'm struggling to live out our calling to walk worthy of who Christ is and what he's called us to be. And we're struggling. We say, God, I can't do this. I need help. And he, the creator, the great I am, comes and abides with us. And his presence is with us. It fills us. And that is what gives us strength to tackle what God has called us to do. This is what Paul's been wanting us to see all along. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. This was way back when we were looking at this June of last year. So I know this has been 11 months since we saw this one here. But Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins the letter with a prayer for the people. This is what he wanted the people in Ephesus to understand, what he wants us to understand. And look at what Paul prays for the people before he even starts the commands of the letter. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers. That, here's his prayer, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So his prayer at the beginning is that we would know God, that God would show himself to us, reveal himself to us, that we might know him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, where the riches of his glory is inheritance in the saints. Now, verse 19, watch this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So go back to verse 19 here in the middle of this. What does Paul pray at the outset of the letter? He prays that we would know the greatness of God's power towards us. Before he even begins the letter here, he's saying, I want you to know the power of God at work in your life. Now we go back over to chapter 6. He says, be strong in the Lord. So he says, I'm praying that you would understand the power of God at work in you. Now I'm commanding you to seek to let God's power fill you here. He bookends the whole book with his prayer for God's power and the command for us to pursue God filling us. Friends, to walk worthy of our calling, we have to have God's strength. But the reason we have to have it, he's going to show us even more because he's going to seek to open our eyes to why we struggle, why we fall short so much. He's going to remind us we must have God's strength because we have a very real enemy who opposes us. Look at verse 11 in chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, armor of God, hang on to that thought. We're going to come to that next week. I'm going to try to demystify the armor of God for you next Sunday, so I hope you'll be back for that one. But right now, the focus for us in verse 11 this morning is God is giving us his strength for a purpose. Look back in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's going to use the word stand four times in the next several verses. The main focus for us right here is because we have an enemy, we're to stand. And look at how he says it in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand Firm. He's trying to get our attention to stand to withstand means to resist an attacker. Paul is saying, you've got to stand, you've got to stand, you've got to withstand because there is an attacker coming after you. Someone is attacking us and if we don't recognize that, if we don't seek God's strength to stand when we're attacked, we will fall into temptation and sin. We'll fall into division. We will fall into living for ourselves. So who is attacking us? Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Friends, the reality is our struggle is not with other people. If you're in the middle of a relational conflict, I know it seems like the other person is the problem, right? Well, he's saying, no, that's not the real problem. There is a bigger problem, a bigger enemy. If you can touch someone, they're not your enemy. There is a bigger enemy that is real that we cannot see, that is far more dangerous than any leader, person, warrior, anyone in the world. We're being attacked by a very real spiritual being. Who is he? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Oh, who is the devil? Well, devil is not a name. It is a description that came to be used as a name. The devil is a Greek word, diabolos, that means an adversary. It means an accuser. And so this title, this description of the spiritual being of devil reminds us he's one who opposes us. He tempts us, and then when we fall into temptation, he accuses us. He's our adversary who tries to trip us up, and then he's the accuser who accuses us when we fall. Maybe you think, okay, I've heard him called the devil, but I've also heard him called Satan. Okay, well, Satan is the equivalent of that in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew, New Testament is written in Greek. The Greek word for adversary and accuser is diabolos. 
the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for adversary or accuser is Satan. We get the English word Satan from it. Satan and, and devil mean the exact same thing. One is from Hebrew, one is from Greek. They both mean accuser. They both mean adversary. That reminds us that this real spiritual being is our adversary who tempts us to sin. And then when we fall, he accuses us. He tries to get us drowned in our guilt. And there's so many other terms for him in the Bible. He's called the tempter, the enemy, the evil one, the adversary, the deceiver, the great dragon, the father of lies. We can go on and on with all the terms that describe this very real spiritual being who opposes us. Well, who is the spiritual being and where did he come from? Well, he did not start off as the devil. He did not start off as Satan. He started off as an angel, a created angel to serve God. We know through the scriptures that he became proud and he rebelled against God and convinced others to follow him as well. We see a glimpse of that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It tells us that God did not spare angels when they sinned. So just time out there. There were angels who sinned. These angels who had been created to serve God and worship God, some of them sinned. And so what happened when they sinned? Well, they were led by, by this, this Satan, this devil that we talk about, this spiritual being who led them to rebel against God, this one who had become proud and wanted to worship and control and power for himself. He led some of them to sin, to rebel against God. But friends, God is all-powerful. He's the only one who's the creator. Even the angels are created beings. They didn't stand a chance. And so look at what happens. When the angels sinned, God cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So at some point at post-creation, there was a rebellion of some of the angels against God. These angels who were created to worship and serve God, some of them rebelled and were cast out. Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever you want to call him, was at the head of all that. And there's a future judgment coming for these angels, for these fallen angels. We now call them demons. Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, gives a glimpse of this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So there's both terms for you there because of the audience here. The, great, the ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There's the idea of him being the accuser again, the adversary and the accuser. And look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Friends, this is not like Star Wars, where you're never sure if the force of the dark side is going to win. Scripture is very, very clear. There's no question God wins period. The devil, Satan, has no hope of prevailing against God. God is victorious. A day is coming when Satan will be permanently locked up and all the demons will be permanently locked up in hell, and there is no hope of him ever deceiving anyone again. But until that day comes, because that day has not come, he is actively working to opposing God. He still, like the day he fell, he hates God being glorified. He hates God being worshipped. He wants it for himself, and so he still does all he can to deny God of his worship. So what does he do? For non-believers, he blinds them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In, this, in their case, the God of this world, that's another title for Satan or the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Because that's why we pray for our mission teams going out and our missionaries going out. Because they're going to people, not just who haven't ever heard before, they're going to people whose eyes have been blinded by a very real spiritual being who's doing all he can to keep them from knowing who God is because he does not want them to worship God. Satan is actively working to oppose God. But he's also actively working against us as believers. He's going to do all he can to tempt us, distract us, divide us, to keep us from walking worthy. 
Look at how it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. This is the reality check for us as believers. Be sober-minded. Why do we need to be sober-minded, Peter? Be watchful. What are we watching for? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is after us. He is determined to do all he can to destroy us so that we do not worship God, so we do not glorify God with our lives. Look at how it's described in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He's talking about forgiveness. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So why is Paul talking about forgiveness? Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. That means there's a very real danger in our interpersonal relations in the church to be outwitted by Satan. We're not ignorant of his designs. But Paul shows us that Satan has a design, a plan to try to outwit us, to try to create division within the body. And so Paul's calling us to forgive other people so Satan doesn't have grounds to get in and create division within the body. He is working against us. And friends, what's so sobering is it's targeted directly at us. Go back to Ephesians 6. Look at verse 12. It says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This word wrestle is an athletic image that means hand-to-hand combat. Think of a wrestling match. Paul's saying we're wrestling against something. We are engaged in hand-to-hand combat with something here. There's something coming after us. And if we think of a wrestle in the mat, if the wrestler just stands there passively and the other person comes, he's going to go down. He's saying that there is someone coming after you. And it's not haphazard what he's doing. Look at verse 11 here. Put on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice the word schemes. It's the Greek word methodeia. Sound familiar? Method. Strategy, plan is saying to let that sink in that the devil, the Satan, is a very real, intelligent, spiritual being who has a carefully strategized plan to destroy your holiness. Has a scheme, a method, a plan to wreck your family. He has a scheme, a strategy, a method, a plan to divide this church. He has a scheme and a strategy to create chaos in our city. He has a scheme and a strategy to blind the mind of unbelievers. And friends, and he's pretty good at doing it. Though he's a creative being, he's limited. He's been around since early in human history. And though he doesn't know our thoughts and is, and is limited, unlike God, he's been watching human nature for thousands of years and has done a pretty good job figuring out what to do, what methods to use to destroy us. But if that's not enough to wake us up, he doesn't work alone. Look at verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but who do we wrestle against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, some people really try to differentiate these things and figure out what the chain of command is in Satan's army. And personally, I don't think that's very helpful because that goes beyond Scripture and leads to a lot of speculation. The point here is not to arouse curiosity in us of how the demons relate in their hierarchy. That's not the point here for us. What Paul's doing is saying, listen, there's a host of an army that works with Satan to oppose you. These are demons. These are fallen angels who are working with Satan to scheme to destroy you, your family, your church, your witness, God being glorified. Why does Satan need demons to do his work with him? Because he's a created being. He's limited. Unlike God, he is very, very limited. God can be anywhere. We call that God's omnipresence, all presence. Satan's not omnipresent. Satan is a being who's limited to point in time. And he roams the earth, but Satan can only be at one place at any one time. He's not everywhere like God is, so he has demons who work with him. God knows our thoughts. He's all-knowing. We call that his omniscience. God is omniscience, all-knowledge. He knows our thoughts. Satan doesn't know our thoughts. He cannot see into our thoughts because he's not all-knowing, but God is. So Satan employs his demons to try to study human nature. 
Satan can't do everything. He is not all-powerful. God is all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. God is omnipotent. Satan is not. So Satan needs these other beings to help do his work because he's a very limited being. Yes, he's powerful, but he's limited to one place in time. He doesn't have all knowledge. He does not have all power. So therefore, he and his demons work a plan to destroy us. Back to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He has a scheme, and his, and his demons work with him to try to destroy us. Friends, because of that, to walk worthy of our calling, we must have God's strength because a very real enemy, I should say a very real enemies, an army of enemies, oppose us. I want to give us a word of caution here on this subject. Some people call this subject spiritual warfare because there's a battle going on where we're wrestling against these demonic forces. Now, there's two dangers that can happen as we think about this subject. And typically in the American church, we go to one of these two extremes. The first, and they're both equally dangerous. The first danger is to ignore the reality of the spiritual battle. To ignore the reality of the spiritual battle. To go through our days not realizing that there is a real being named Satan who hates God and hates us. To go through our days not realizing that there are demons around us trying to tempt us, trying to divide us, trying to destroy our home life, trying to destroy our witness, trying to destroy our joy in Christ. And friends, if we do not realize them, we remain so vulnerable. I mean, you, you all know soldiers who've been fighting in the Middle East and overseas. Can you imagine a soldier in, the, in a war zone in Afghanistan or Iraq getting up in the morning in athletic shorts and T-shirts and flip-flops and going for a run out in the middle of the town while, hanging, while listening to music on his iPod and playing with a beach ball or something? Like, you, know, you wouldn't do that. It would be so dumb to do that because you'd be so vulnerable if you don't realize the threat against you as an American in that particular city. So often, though, in our Christian life, that is what we do. We run through our Christian life completely ignorant of the fact, not praying, not thinking, not aware that all around us are spiritual beings who despise God and hate us and hate us living for the glory of God. They do not want our homes to be places of unity. They do not want our churches to be places of unity. They do not want us to make Christ known in our schools and our business places. They're going to do all they can to trip us up. And we are naive if we run through life forgetting that we are in a battle. And so we ignore the reality of the spiritual battle to our own peril. There's a second danger, second thing that we can do that's equally dangerous, and that's we get obsessed with the spiritual battles. We get obsessed with these battles, and we try to find the demon behind every rock, and we come up with all sorts of crazy strategies to fight demons, and we blame everything on Satan. And friends, that's not the focus of Scripture. Scripture nowhere calls us to go seek out demons. Nowhere calls us to go try to interview demons. It doesn't call us to go looking for the battles. That's not what our calling is. And so we can get equally dangerous side of things if we get obsessed with the battles and start living in fear of Satan, start trying to find Satan everywhere. What do we need to do to keep the balance? What is our calling? Well, years ago, I had a professor named Chuck Lawless, and he really shaped my thinking on this in terms of this idea of the spiritual battles. And I'm going to give you a definition for spiritual warfare, what we're talking about, that helped me keep this balance. It's simply this. He says, spiritual warfare is so loving God and living and speaking for him that God is glorified and an already defeated Satan feels threatened. Friends, that is an anchor force. As you try to find think through this issue, this to me is the best definition I've found. What is our calling to do? Our calling is not to go to seek out demons. Our calling is not to go try to make these battles happen. Our calling is to love God. I mean, more than anything else, that is what we as his children do. We're to love God and we're to live and speak for him. Now, in two weeks, we're going to, we're going to focus more on what it means to speak for him because Paul's going to get to that. What is our role in prayer and in witness to advance God's kingdom? So that's coming as part of this. Our focus is to love God to walk in holiness, to live and speak for him, to, to, to represent Christ. This is a way of saying walk worthy of our calling. 
And friends, when we do that, God is glorified. When we seek to make Christ known, God is glorified. When we seek to walk in holiness, God is glorified. But the reality check for us is that that's what we're called to do. There is a real enemy who's going to do all he can to stop us from doing that. He feels threatened. When we seek to live for God's glory, when we seek to live and speak for God, there's an enemy who opposes us. So we don't go looking for the battles. We go looking to love God and to live and speak for him. But knowing that as we do that, this very real enemy is going to attack us. But here's our hope in that. He feels threatened. But notice he's already defeated. Was that in Revelation already, friends? We don't have to defeat him. We can't. But God already has defeated him. On the cross, he's been defeated. And he will one day be ultimately locked up. We don't have to fight that one. God's doing that for us. So we have to realize we live for God. And as we do that, the enemy attacks us. But God has already defeated him. So our job is to live out Ephesians 1 through 5. Our job is to love God. Our job is to walk worthy. Our job is to speak for him. And friends, we don't have to lose heart in the battle because God is with us. Friends, we can walk worthy of our calling, even though a very real enemy opposes us, because we have God's strength. Did you hear this in one other place in Scripture? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. This is, this is an incredible verse in Scripture. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's what keeps us from losing heart. When you're faced with the temptation you've been faced with over and over again, how do you not lose heart? Because if you know Christ, God is in you. What happens when you're at a place and you feel persecution? You know, you know you're taking to the gospel to a place where there's much darkness. How do you not lose heart? Because if you're in Christ, you know God. You're his child. He is dwelling within you. When you have the abiding presence of Christ, friends, what do we have to fear? He who is in us, Christ in us, is greater than he who is in the world. Therefore, we can walk worthy. Therefore, we can go back to Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So, friends, I want to ask you this morning. Are you in either danger, either in the danger of ignoring the battle, and perhaps you've been defeated over and over and over again because you forget that there's an enemy opposing you, or are you in the other danger of getting obsessed with the battle? God's calling us to a place of living for him and being prepared for the battle. But friends, I want to ask all of us, are we living our lives like there is a spiritual battle around us? Are we living our lives for us? I think so often one of Satan's strategies, he gets us so focused on ourselves and our American dreams and our goals and all these things that... He's already got us where he wants us. He's got us living defeated when we think we're doing pretty well. How do we know if we're living with aware of the spiritual battle? I think a lot shows in our prayers. Because if we understand that we're in a battle, that we're called to live for God's glory, and there's an enemy opposes us, it will change how we pray. So I want to ask us, are we praying first? If we're not praying, we don't have much awareness of the battle. But if we are praying, what are we praying for? There's one of my favorite authors I read years ago asked the question. He said, Is, do you treat prayer... Like it's a walkie-talkie for survival and warfare? Or do you treat prayer like it's a domestic intercom for our conveniences? If we pause and look at our, our prayers, are we praying? Well, if not, then we don't recognize the battle. But if we are praying, are we praying like we're in a war and we want to see God glorified? Or are we praying because we want all of our comforts met? And then the last question for us this morning, friends, from this text, do we have the very real presence of God in our lives? This is ultimately what this is calling us to. It's not calling us to self-help. This is calling us to the presence of God, that he is coming to us. He's giving us off himself, and he wants to fill us with a strength that is so real, with a presence so real that we desire to know him, that we desire holiness, that we desire to make him known. Friends, to walk worthy of our calling, we have to have his strength, and he offers it. So my challenge for you and for myself this week is, let us, let us take time this week to pray. 
to ask God particularly, God, fill us with your presence. God, would you increase our awareness of your presence in our lives? And as we long for his presence and we ask for his presence and we seek his presence, God will give it to us. He's promised to do that, Ephesians 5, 18. And as he does that, friends, let's pray as well that he would give us greater awareness of the battles that we are in and much strength and much grace as he abides with us so that we can walk worthy and make him known. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you love us enough to show us what's going on around us, that we don't have to wonder why we struggle. We don't have to wonder why it's so hard to live for you. God, you've made it very clear to us. God, you've not shown us these truths to make us fearful. You've not shown us these truths that we despair. You've shown us these truths so that we can walk victorious as your children. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would help all of us have a greater sense of the reality of the war that we're in. God, that we'd understand what's at stake, that, Lord, we're called to glorify you and to make you known. And, God, would you stir our hearts with a greater longing to glorify you and to live and speak for you. The Lord, as well, we pray that as we seek to do that and the enemy opposes us, God, that we wouldn't keep falling to his schemes. But, God, would you open our eyes to the schemes of the enemy? Would you open our eyes to your grace from your presence in us that can make us victorious? We don't want to be victorious just so we can have some power experience. God, we want to be victorious so that we can walk worthy of our colleagues, so that you can be glorified and we can find the joy of your presence. So, God, we ask for much grace for this because we cannot achieve, we cannot be victorious on our own. God, you give more grace. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise for what you're going to do in our lives this week. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing about God's power in our lives? We talk about him holding us fast.